Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Bowles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Paul Ventrella, and I'm a partner here at Glayhold Bowles LLP. I'm joined today by my colleague Matthew DiBardino, an articling student at Glayhold Bowles. And today we're going to be discussing the current status of prompt payment and adjudication legislation across Canada with a specific emphasis on Ontario. By way of general overview, as it relates to Ontario, the province of Ontario taking influence from existing provisions from UK construction legislation implemented amendments to the Construction Act, putting new prompt payment and adjudication processes for construction in place, the relevant provisions coming into effect on October 1, 2019. Since then, other Canadian jurisdictions have reviewed Ontario's legislation and have either implemented or have contemplated implementing very similar provisions tailored to fit their specific needs. Through this podcast, we intend to shed some light on the status of prompt payment and adjudication provisions in Ontario and across Canada. And please note that when dealing with the Construction Act matters, we always advise speaking with a construction lawyer who can tailor advice to your exact situation. So without any further ado, Matthew, I think a good place to start would be a brief review of Ontario's Construction Act, prompt payment and adjudication provisions. Yes, thank you, John Paul. And as you mentioned, Ontario was the first Canadian jurisdiction to put prompt payment and adjudication requirements in place. The relevant provisions coming into force on October 1st, 2019. Prompt payment and adjudication are only applicable to projects where the prime construction contract was entered into on or after October 1st, 2019, or where a procurement process was commenced on or after October 1st, 2019. Generally, the prompt payment provisions of the Construction Act require an owner to make payment within 28 days after receiving a proper invoice from a contractor, a contractor to make payment to its subcontractors within seven days after receiving payment from the owner, and a subcontractor to make payment to its subcontractors within seven days after receiving payment from the contractor. You can find these requirements at sections 6.4 through 6.6 of the Act. A proper invoice, being a defined term under the Act, must include the requisite information as defined thereunder and shall be given to the owner on a monthly basis unless the contract provides otherwise. You can find these requirements at sections 6.1 and 6.3 of the Act. Where a payor disputes the amount invoiced by the payee, and in order to withhold payment for the disputed amount, the payor must provide a notice of non-payment within the timeline specified in the Act. In the absence of a notice of non-payment, in accordance with the Act, the payor shall make full payment to the payee. The timelines for the giving of a notice of non-payment are as follows. From an owner to a contractor within 14 days after the receipt of a proper invoice, that's found at section 6.4 sub 2. From a contractor to a subcontractor, within seven days of receiving a notice of non-payment from the owner, or in the absence of an owner's notice of non-payment, within 35 days after the proper invoice was given to the owner. Those requirements are found at section 6.5 sub 4 and section 6.5 sub 7. And finally, from a subcontractor to its subcontractor, within seven days after receiving a notice of non-payment from the contractor, or in the absence of a contractor's notice of non-payment within 42 days after the proper invoice was given to the owner. 
Those requirements are found at section 6.6 .6 sub 5 and 6.6 .6 sub 8 of the Act. A party's failure to make payment in accordance with the prompt payment provisions of the Act is a proper ground for the commencement of an adjudication under Part 2.1 of the Act. Thank you, Matthew. And if listeners are interested in, in some more detail about Ontario's prompt payment system and the legislation, I would point you to a webcast prepared by Glayhold Bowles, which is available on our website, dealing specifically with the topic. At that presentation, there are some very helpful charts and timelines, as well as a PowerPoint presentation, which puts some clarity to the strict timelines that are involved when dealing with prompt payment. There is also a good discussion about what a proper invoice is and what it is not and how to review invoices to ensure that they comply with the act and the contract that is in play between the parties. On that note, Matthew, maybe we should turn now to adjudication. Can you give us a snapshot of what adjudication looks like in Ontario? Thank you, John Paul. I would recommend that our listeners check out the webcast that you pointed them to for more detail and helpful information about adjudication. And I'll just outline some of the prominent provisions now for our listeners. Construction dispute interim adjudication is governed by both Part 2.1 of the Act and Ontario Regulation 306.18. To understand adjudication, it is important to look at both the Act and the regulation. Adjudication is intended to be a relatively quick process. Subject to the party's consent to an extension, an adjudicator shall make a determination within 30 days after receiving the requisite documents. That's found at Section 13.13 of the Act. That determination will be binding on the parties unless and until it is determined otherwise by a court, an arbitrator under the Arbitration Act, or pursuant to a written agreement between the parties. That's found at Section 13.15 of the Act. At the moment, the Ontario Dispute Adjudication for Construction Contracts, or ODAC, is the authorized nominating authority appointed under the Act and is responsible for administering construction-related adjudications. As set out in ODAC's 2021 annual review, only 34 adjudications were completed across all sectors in the fiscal year, being August 1, 2020 to July 31, 2021, with the average amount claimed being approximately 174000 and the average determination payment amount or award being approximately 27000 Thanks, Matthew. And we thought it would be helpful for the listeners today to establish or go through a brief checklist for adjudication. And so this is a checklist our firm has put together over the last few years, given the rise in the use of adjudication and that we tend to look to when clients come to us seeking to pursue adjudication. So I'll take it step by step and try to address some of the important facets of adjudication. So first on the checklist, in my opinion, is the question, is adjudication permitted or appropriate? And so this is the gatekeeper question. In Ontario, it is important to note that Part 2.1 of the Act, so the section dealing with adjudication, apply only to an improvement if the prime construction contract was entered into or a procurement process for the prime construction contract was commenced on or after October 1, 2019. It also only applies the adjudication provisions if the contract has not been completed, is not invalid, or has not otherwise ceased to exist. And so to find reference to that requirement, one would look to sections 13.5 sub 3 and also sections 13.18 sub 5. If you pass that gatekeeper threshold, 
then you must also consider whether your matter is one that can actually be adjudicated under the Act. If you look to Section 13.51 of the Act, there's a clear list of matters that are available for adjudication, and those matters include the valuation of services or materials provided under the contract, payment under the contract, including in respect of a change order, whether approved or not, or a proposed change order, disputes that are the subject of a notice of non-payment under Part 1.1, which Matthew briefly discussed earlier, amounts retained under Section 12, which is a set-off by a trustee, or under Subsection 17.3, being a lien set-off, payment of a holdback under Section 26.1 or 26.2, the non-payment of holdback under Section 27.1, and importantly, and lastly, any other matters that the parties to the adjudication agree to or that may be prescribed. So at this time, I'm not aware of any other matter that has been prescribed, but it is important to remember that the parties to the adjudication can agree to extend or expand the applicability of adjudication beyond the matters that are available for adjudication specifically under the Act. And at this point, when you're determining whether or not the adjudication is one that is proper and can be commenced under the Act, an applicant also wants to consider whether adjudication is the right venue for them. And it's important to self-reflect at this stage, whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a client seeking to adjudicate a dispute, to determine whether or not the key documents that would be required for an adjudication are organized, easily accessible, and the reason is because through adjudications, the process is very, very quick. And so anybody who's been involved in normal litigation understands that it's very difficult to get matters resolved in 28 days as the act would require in your typical adjudication scenario. So an important consideration is whether or not the client or you, depending on your position, is ready to undertake that task and to put a convincing argument before an adjudicator under the strict timelines that are required. Also, I think an important note at the beginning of an adjudication, if you're a respondent faced with an adjudication, is to consider whether or not you challenge the jurisdiction of the adjudicator and ODAC. And again, to do that, you would want to look at that list of permitted matters set out in the Act, or you'd want to consider whether or not the dispute arose after the contract's completion or if the contract has ceased to exist. These are two grounds upon which you could challenge ODAC's jurisdiction for the adjudication. So something to think about. The next step in the checklist would be to deal with the notice of adjudication and the response to that notice. It's important to formally commence the process, obviously, and to do so, one submits a notice of adjudication through the ODAC portal. All notices of adjudication must be in writing, and that's pursuant to section 13.7 sub 1. It must include the names and addresses of the parties, a description of the dispute, the nature of the relief sought, and include a proposed adjudicator. And so the ODAC has a roster of adjudicators that are licensed and listed on their site. And so it's important from my view to review those adjudicators and to find one who the parties believe is appropriate for the decision that they're asking to be made. Many are lawyers, many are engineers, many are both. Again, it'll depend on the, the matter who is selected. Once the notice of adjudication is filed, the adjudication pleadings need to be served. We always recommend that the pleadings be served as per the rules of civil procedure. And notwithstanding that ODAC has a portal in place for documents and the exchange of documents, it's unclear as to whether or not that portal would fit the bill of an electric document exchange within the rules meanings. 
And so we would recommend just following the rules, serving the documents in accordance with the rules to ensure there's no issues. And it's important to remember that the notice of adjudication, while it must be in writing, it also must be very brief and it's limited to 250 words. If you're responding to an adjudication, then you have to respond in writing pursuant to section 13.11. You must respond within four days of receipt of the notice of adjudication or an adjudicator may be selected without your input. So it's important to act quickly. And if you don't act, the process can also go forward without you. So again, important to respond as one would, for example, in a traditional litigation scenario with a statement of defense. Similar to the applicant, you want to serve all the pleadings as per the rules of civil procedure to ensure there's no issues and your response is limited to 250 words. So it is important to be concise. John Paul, one of the things that I heard you say was that an adjudicator can be an engineer or a lawyer or both. What are some things that you should, as a participant, consider when selecting an adjudicator? Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And I, I maybe alluded to it possibly cryptically in my earlier comments, but you're right. Selecting an appropriate adjudicator is a very important piece of this process. You'll go on to ODAC's registry and there there is a list of registered and available adjudicators. And when selecting, I would say it's important to consider the nature of the dispute and the type of expertise that would be most helpful for that dispute. So, for example, if the dispute raises complex legal issues, you may wish to select an adjudicator with a legal background. If the matter is more of a technical issue, you may prefer an engineer or an architect or someone with project management experience. Again, it depends on the dispute being adjudicated. I will say that both the claimant and the respondent have the right to select their respective choices through that ODAC portal. And so, again, important to look at the biographies for each adjudicator and select. But if the parties can't come to an agreement on an adjudicator, then ODAC will step in and choose an adjudicator for the parties. So I would always recommend trying to agree upon an adjudicator, but if that's not possible, ODAC will appoint one for the matter. Once an adjudicator is selected, the next step would be to ensure that the appropriate adjudication process is selected. So to do so, it's important to look at the complexity of the matter whether written submissions will suffice or whether oral submissions are necessary and to pick a process that works for the specific matter in front of you. To assist parties with the adjudication process, ODAC has provided a number of pre-designed processes and those processes are connected with standard fees. If you go on ODAC's website, you can see these processes, how they unfold and the fees associated with them. I will note that when selecting a process, it's important to understand that claimants may be at a strategic advantage when less page numbers for submissions, for example, are allowed. And the reason being is that neither the contract documents, proper invoices, et cetera, count towards the claimant's page count. On the other hand, everything the respondent submits will count towards its page count. So if a process is selected, whereas there is a very limited page count for submissions, it's important to ensure that you can make your argument in the page count provided. On that note, and I guess it goes without saying, is that adjudication pleadings must be concise. So depending on the process selected, arguments may be extremely limited. The most extensive pre-designed process limits submissions to a maximum of 10 pages per party, with supporting documents limited to 25 pages, including witness statements. So important to keep in mind, the pleadings must be concise. And also important to keep in mind when preparing the submissions, at this time, it's not expressly clear whether Rule 4.01 of the Rules of Civil Procedure, which govern document standards generally, apply to adjudication. But 
from our perspective, we assume that rule 4.01 of the rules does apply and we prepare our submissions in accordance with the parameters under that rule. In addition to pleadings being concise in adjudications, it's also important to recognize that time is of the essence. The time frame from submissions of a notice of adjudication through main arguments, responding arguments and reply may only be two weeks. So time management is critical. And I discussed the pre-designed processes that were developed by ODAC. And just as an example, one of the most comprehensive processes that is provided for by ODAC includes a determination being made in 30 days. And the suggested timeline put forward is as follows. So day one, the adjudicators selected by the parties are appointed by ODAC. At day five, a claimant submits a copy of the construction contract. And if there is an invoice that the claimant submits is unpaid, the claimant may also provide a copy of that invoice. The claimant is to submit its arguments and photographs to a maximum of 10 pages and also submits documents, parts of documents and witness statements to a maximum of 25 pages. And those are total pages. By day seven, the adjudicator communicate the balance of the process to the parties, including the timing for the respondent to submit its arguments and photographs. And the process may also include the mechanism for oral presentations if required. By day 12, so five days later, the respondent submits its arguments. And by day 18 or earlier, oral presentations are made to the adjudicator by the parties. By day 30, draft determination is sent to ODAC by the adjudicator. And by day 35, a final determination is released to the parties. So anybody involved in typical litigation, knows that a 35-day period from essentially the commencement of the claim to a decision being rendered is a very, very short timeline. So again, it's important to ensure that adjudication is the correct process for you, that you can comply and abide by the strict timelines involved and put the best case forward for your client or for yourself in that framework. The pre-designed adjudication process that I was just discussing was process number four, which is included on ODAC's website. Again, there are different models and different frameworks and parties are free to customize the framework, but that model will give you a sense of how quickly and how onerous the process could be and how important it is to ensure that pleadings are concise, that documentation is organized, and that the parties who are engaging in the adjudication are prepared to follow the framework. Thank you, John Paul. One thing that I've come to appreciate as a younger member of the firm is that when dealing with self-represented parties, it's important to take care. So in the context of adjudication and as lawyers, how do we take care when dealing with self-represented parties? Yeah, that's a good question, Matthew. And I, I think the answer is, is simply that we just have to be mindful of our obligations as lawyers under the rules of professional conduct, as well as the Law Society of Ontario's guidelines relating to self-represented litigants. Adjudications are, compared to court, for example, relatively informal proceedings. And while we as lawyers are used to certain decorum, regardless of a proceedings informality, a self-represented litigant may not be, and that's maybe a general statement, but they may not be used to this type of proceeding. And so in those circumstances, I think it's important to identify that at the beginning and for the parties to set out clear boundaries and guidelines as to the conduct that should be expected throughout the adjudication. 
And the one example that comes to mind is that ODAX interface has a wall, which is akin to Facebook or LinkedIn, where the parties and the adjudicator can post messages. And so if proper ground rules are not set in place, and this is obviously largely per the responsibility of the adjudicator, a self-rep may feel free to make, for example, informal submissions on this wall. And so I think it's best, especially in a scenario where you have a self-represented litigant, to establish ground rules with the adjudicator early on, just to avoid any possible issues. Thanks, John Paul. How about adjudicator fees? Sure. Uh, important question that most parties are interested in, in understanding. So the Act states that the parties bear their own legal costs, and that's section 13.16, and will equally split the final adjudicator bill, and that's at section 13.10 sub 3. However, it must be noted that the adjudicator has discretion to award costs where one party has acted, and I'll use the words from the Act, in respect of an improvement in a manner that is frivolous, vexatious, an abusive process, or other than in good faith, and that can be found in section 13.17. So parties typically bear their own costs, but there is discretion on the part of the adjudicator to change that scheme. And just as another note, fees are usually paid upfront for the process. Thank you, John Paul. And one thing I heard you say earlier was that generally determinations are turned around fairly quickly under the ODAC processes. So once a party has that determination in hand, what happens next and how can a party enforce that determination? Sure. So I guess the starting point is the award. So an adjudication award must be paid within 10 days or else interest will begin to accrue. And there is the option of once a certified copy of the determination is received from ODAC, it can be registered as an order with the courts to ensure that it can be enforced by the courts if that becomes necessary. And you can find the provision dealing with that under Section 13.20. So in order to do that, you'd file copies with the court as you would do a normal court order. A certified copy of the determination would be issued by the court and entered by the court. No order needs to be drafted here. The court just assigns the ODAC file a new court file number, and they'll issue and enter the order in that new number. And then once you're in receipt of that issued certified determination, then you would notify the opposing parties of the fact that it was filed within 10 days. One reason why one would do that is because it provides the option of enforcing the determination as one would do with a typical court order through writs and garnishments and other remedies provided for under the rules. If a determination is not paid, the parties also have the option to suspend work, and you can see that under Section 13.19 sub 5. So two fairly powerful options available to a successful party through adjudication. Thanks, John Paul. I think one question that some of our listeners may have is whether the adjudication process precludes commencing a court action or other parallel proceedings such as a lien action, or are those things allowed in parallel? Sure, that's a great question, Matthew. And in Ontario, the adjudication model allows for parallel proceedings. So if necessary, we would always caution parties to continue with parallel proceedings, and it may be necessary to continue or to commence a lien action, notwithstanding an act of adjudication, to avoid losing lien rights. Again, each scenario is different and should be looked at on its own facts, but we would urge our listeners to see Section 3410 of the Construction Act, which addresses how adjudication affects the expiration of a lien. 
The next important consideration with respect to adjudicators' determinations is, are they challengeable? So the Act makes clear that a decision is interim and parties may pursue a final court order or determination by an arbitrator, which can overturn the adjudication determination. A party can also seek judicial review, but that review requires leave of the divisional court pursuant to Section 13.18 sub 1 of the Act. And if a party seeks to pursue that route, a motion for leave must be filed within 30 days after the adjudicator's determination is communicated to the parties under Section 13.18 sub 2. And there is no appeal if leave is not granted. And there is the option for the court to dismiss the motion for leave without providing any reasons. And you can look to sections 13.18 subsections 3 and 4 for those provisions. It is also important to note that there are specified reasons in the act for setting aside a determination. So look to those specified reasons to determine whether or not your challenge is permissible. And it's also important to know that if you were to launch judicial review and that was underway, the determination is not state and that provision is found at section 13.18 sub 7. So if a party is ordered to pay, it must pay, notwithstanding it intends to or is seeking to review the decision or the determination. And if a determination is ultimately set aside by the court, then the court may order the return of amounts paid. But it is not according to the act permissible to disregard the adjudicator's decision and not pay a judgment or an award. And as we discuss adjudication and the enforcement of determinations, we'd be remiss not to mention a recently released decision of the Divisional Court, and the case name is Soda Dental Studio Inc. v. Andrid Group Limited. The citation is 2022 ONSC 2254. And in that case, we see an application for judicial review under the prompt payment provisions of the Construction Act, which was brought with leave of the court. Facts in the case are fairly straightforward. Soda retained the respondent, Andrew, to build a dental clinic. Andrew performed the work and sent invoices to Soda. Soda did not dispute the invoices within 14 days of receipt, as is required under the rules of the prompt payment. So those invoices were due and payable. Soda did not pay, and so Andrew invoked adjudication under the Act. An adjudicator was selected to adjudicate, and the parties exchanged written submissions. Ultimately, the adjudicator ordered that Soda pay $38,454.55. Soda disagreed with the determination and sought and obtained leave for judicial review in accordance with the Act. In the interim, however, Soda failed to pay Andrew in accordance with the determination. And so Andrew took steps to collect on the amounts due and owed to it, including issuing garnishments and garnishing Soda's bank account, where it was able to collect some of the amounts that were owed as per the determination. Ultimately, the matter came before a three-judge panel of the divisional court, and the application was heard. The court denied the relief sought by Soda, and in its reasons, the court lays out some very interesting points and pointers for parties involved in adjudications going forward. So the court ultimately found that the applicant had neither complied with the decision of the adjudicator, i.e. to pay Andred, nor did they obtain a stay of the adjudicator's decision pending determination of the application it brought. So does non-compliance with the determination in the absence of a stay of that order pending the hearing undercut the scheme of prompt payment provisions of the Construction Act. And because of this, the court ultimately denied Soda's application and laid out two important principles for parties to keep in mind on a go-forward basis. And the first principle is that prompt payment is integral to the scheme of the Construction Act, 
So you should pay if the invoice is proper, and if it's not proper, you have to follow the act. If an adjudicator determines that payment should be made, it ought to be made unless there is a stay of that order pending review. And the court also found that failure to pay in accordance with the prompt payment requirements of the act may lead the court to refuse leave. Where leave is granted, an applicant must obtain a stay or must make payment, failing which the court could dismiss the application on motion to quash or at the hearing of the application. So again, one of the important takeaways of this early decision related to adjudication and prompt payment is that if a determination is made and payment is required, that payment must be made unless you stay is obtained or else you may not be successful moving forward with the divisional court seeking judicial review of the determination. I would urge you to read this early decision of the divisional court related to judicial review of adjudicators determinations as this is going to be no doubt used or cited quite frequently until a more fulsome body of case law is developed in this area. And last interesting note, as I mentioned previously, it is important if you're unable to collect upon a determination to have your orders entered with the court, which would allow you to have the remedies and enforcement mechanisms available under the rules. So in this case, for example, it appears that Android did that and was able to issue garnishments and collect some of the fees in anticipation of the attendance before the divisional court. So that was a general overview of some important considerations when looking at the adjudication process in Ontario. As we mentioned earlier on in the podcast, Ontario is the first jurisdiction in Canada to implement adjudication as a means to streamline disputes, and it does appear to be picking up steam. But I think at this point, it's important to note that while Ontario was the first There's also some important movement with respect to both prompt payment and adjudication across the country. Thanks, John Paul. That's right. And all Canadian jurisdictions have, with varying degrees, either reviewed, contemplated, or implemented some form of adjudication and or prompt payment. I'll start with briefly reviewing Saskatchewan, as it is one of the more exciting jurisdictions as it has recently implemented prompt payment and adjudication. On March 1st, 2022, the prompt payment and adjudication regime provided for in Saskatchewan's The Builders Lean Prompt Payment Amendment Act 2019 and the related regulations came into force. The Saskatchewan Construction Dispute Resolution Office, or SCDRO, a new not-for-profit corporation, will act as the official adjudication authority and the ADR Institute of Saskatchewan, Inc. will work with the SCDRO to provide adjudicators. So, Matthew, sorry to cut across, is SCDRO, is that the equivalent to Ontario's ODAC? That's right, John Paul. And That similarity is not the only similarity between Saskatchewan's prompt payment and adjudication regime and Ontario's. Saskatchewan's prompt payment and notice of dispute timelines are the same as Ontario's. Notwithstanding that Saskatchewan's regime largely mirrors Ontario's, generally, there are some important carve-outs. One example is the prompt payment and adjudication regime in Saskatchewan does not apply to architects, engineers, land surveyors, and persons providing services or materials for any improvement with respect to a mine or mineral resource or an improvement related to infrastructure-related electrical energy. 
Thanks, Matthew. So as I understand it, then Saskatchewan's regime closely mirrors Ontario, but we would highly recommend people to obviously look carefully at Saskatchewan's legislation to ensure that they understand the timelines and the existence of important differences between Saskatchewan and Ontario's regime. Thank you, John Paul. Alberta is another exciting jurisdiction as it recently announced on February 25th, 2022, that the Builders Lean Prompt Payment Amendment Act 2020 and its regulations will come into force on August 29th, 2022. Additionally, Alberta's Bill 62, being the Red Tape Reduction Implementation Act 2021, received royal assent on June 21st, 2021, and upon coming into force will further amend Alberta's upcoming prompt payment and adjudication regime. Alberta's upcoming regime is similar to the one in place in Ontario. The prompt payment timelines are the same, being 28 days from the owner to the contractor and seven days as between contractors and subcontractors. The notice of dispute or notice of non-payment timelines are also the same, being from an owner within 14 days of receiving a proper invoice and as between contractors and subcontractors within seven days of the receipt of a notice of dispute or within 35 days for a contractor to a subcontractor or 42 days from a subcontractor to its subcontractor of the date the proper invoice was given to the owner. One of the key differences between Alberta's upcoming regime as it currently stands and the Ontario model is that upon Bill 62 coming into force, Adjudication will not be available where an action has already been commenced or is commenced on the same date as the adjudication in respect of the dispute that is the subject matter of the adjudication. And that can be found at section 33.4 sub 1 and sub 3 of Bill 62. Thanks, Matthew. And having now gone through Ontario, Saskatchewan and the proposed legislation in Alberta, We'll move on to some of the other jurisdictions across Canada, and this session is going to be brief. And the reason being is that not much is happening in those other jurisdictions. Many of them are taking a wait and see approach, trying to see how these regimes roll out in Ontario and other jurisdictions before they implement their own, which is understandable, especially in some of the smaller provinces and territories. Interestingly, there seems to be very little movement in British Columbia with respect to prompt payment and adjudication with the latest British Columbia Law Institute report suggesting that there may be merits to prompt payment and interim adjudication, but no real study has been undertaken in that jurisdiction to my knowledge to date. Before signing off, I do think it's important to mention two other jurisdictions that have interesting programs related to prompt payment and adjudication, and that is Quebec and federally. So with respect to Quebec, unlike Ontario and Saskatchewan, Quebec doesn't have a full adjudication and prompt payment regime in place. It has, however, implemented a pilot project, which introduces prompt payment and adjudication to the province in a very limited way. So I say limited because it only applies to contracts and subcontracts for public projects, which are specifically identified and listed under Schedule 1 of an act respecting the acceleration of certain infrastructure projects, provided that the contract is entered into on or before December 11, 2025. So it's a pilot project related to very specific public projects. So if you're listening in from Quebec or if you're dealing with a dispute in Quebec, it's important to ensure that your matter falls within one of those expressly prescribed matters. Federally, 
On June 21, 2019, the Federal Prompt Payments for Construction Work Act received royal assent. It's not yet come into force, but it will be at some point in the near future. The Federal Act will apply strictly to work performed for the purposes of a construction project in respect of federal immovables and federal real property. So it's important to ensure that if you're deciding whether or not adjudication applies to you on the federal level, that the work performed was for the purpose of a construction project in respect of federal immovables and federal real property. And interestingly, and not surprisingly, the federal regime is similar to the one in place in Ontario. The timelines are similar, being 28 days for prompt payment. The difference comes in the cascading seven-day deadlines for payment between contractors and subcontractors, which we mentioned earlier in our discussion. In the federal act, the seven-day deadline for payment between a contractor and subcontractor is triggered by the date the owner receives a proper invoice instead of the date that payment is made. So that is a big difference from the Ontario regime. Also, for payment refusals under the federal act, the owner must give the contractor a notice of non-payment within 21 days after receipt of a proper invoice. Also, an important consideration with respect to the federal construction adjudication is that it will only be available in respect of disputes over non-payment and where a contractor or subcontractor has not been fully paid for its construction work within the time limited for payment provided under the act or a shorter time set out in its contract. So it's not as widely applicable and readily available as the Ontario regime is. And on that note, Matthew, I think we are at the end of our time here today. Adjudication and prompt payment are interesting topics that are sure to add some efficiency to construction projects and hopefully will achieve the purpose of ensuring that payment continues to flow and disputes that can be resolved are resolved throughout the life of a project. The success of adjudication and prompt payment obviously are still yet to be seen, but it's an exciting time for construction law and we're continuing to keep our eye on the development of these various regimes across the country. Please keep tuning in and we will provide further updates as they become available. Thank you, John Paul, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If any of our listeners have any questions, they can be directed to info at glayholt.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.